Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Kevin Cassis to the Philacrosophy Podcast. Kevin is the head coach at Lehigh, and uh, really excited to have you on. Kevin, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Jamie. Thanks for having me. So, um, as I do with most of the guests, we like to start off with uh, a little bit about your lacrosse journey. So, um, I mean, I remember watching you play on the Empire team, but I know it started before that. So, maybe you can give us a little bit of uh, where you came from and, and how you ended up at Duke. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, take it back to the beginning, the way beginning. And, you know, the, when I was born into the Cassis family, um, the Cassis family never really was a lacrosse family. Um, actually, I was the only person in my family ever to play lacrosse. Um, my father um, and mother were. My dad was a phys ed teacher and a football coach. Uh, so we were very much a football family. And you know, on Long Island, growing up uh, out in Port Jeff Station, um, Compswag High School is where my dad uh, taught and coached. And that's where uh, I ended up uh, going to high school and, and playing for him. And um, lacrosse was not the biggest sport in our town. Um, actually, uh, baseball was the biggest sport in, in our town at the spring. Um, the next town over, though, um, was Ward Melville and the three village area. So, uh, if we wanted to play lacrosse, you know, go over to the Three Village and get on one of their teams. And um, I was introduced to it um, actually, you know, through, uh, you know, unfortunately the bad news, uh, the, the late, uh, great uh, John Banks. And uh, yeah. Liam Banks was a great friend of mine. And, uh, and, and uh, Mr. Banks, uh, old man Banks, uh, as he's affectionately known, um, gave him my first lacrosse stick. Um, you know, we were playing baseball together and um, he pulled me aside and said, hey, check this thing out. You know, why don't you go mess around with this? And we have some indoor space over at the Stony Brook School. We'd love for you to come over and just, you know, run around with our guys. And um, that's how I was introduced to the sport. And 
you know, so a bunch of my friends um, over in the Compsawag School District went over, played at Three Village and, you know, played with Old Man Banks and Liam and, and that whole crew. Uh, and eventually we had enough guys in, in Compsawag to, to make our own youth team. Um, and we did. Um, so baseball was kind of the thing that we did. Um, that was, you know, youth league. That was uh, up until middle school. Actually, for a while, we played both lacrosse and baseball. Wow. And it was funny, the, uh, the, the baseball team um, that we played on was, was one of the best on Long Island. We actually uh, went up and played in, in Cooperstown and represented Long Island and one of the championships. And it was amazing to see some of the lacrosse players that you know, would turn out to be All-Americans and professional players that were on that baseball team. No way. Uh, you know, guys like Liam Banks, um, Nick Russo, who played at Virginia, uh, it's Pearson, played at, uh, at Army. Uh, his brother Charlie Pearson. We we had so many guys that you know ended up uh, going on to, to play the cross. And um, what happened was we all migrated over to the sport. And uh, you know by the time we were juniors in high school, our lacrosse team at Comstock was winning the state championship for New York. Um, our baseball team wasn't quite as good. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of how it went. But um, you know, f so football um, was was really my first love um, growing up. Um, you know my my trajectory uh, growing up uh, in, in my household and being a part of Comsawag was that, you know, my brother, four years older than me, I uh, followed in his footsteps. And, you know, so he and I both went on this trajectory of we were the water boy for the football team. And then we graduated to be the ball boy. Um, and then eventually we became the quarterback of the team. And uh, that's kind of how our progression went. So you know, we grew up around athletics. We grew up in sports. Um, our babysitter was going to the practice. Uh, we, you know, we weren't ba having babysitters at home. Uh, went to our dad's practice. And, um, you know, some of our mentors and best friends were, were the guys that played on the team, um, the football team. So that was kind of how, uh, how I was brought up. And then and when you mesh that with getting introduced to lacrosse in, in middle school, um, you know, it was so much fun to play. And we had uh, such great athletes in our area and great competition against teams like, you know, the Ward Melville teams and Sachem and uh, Stony Brook and Shoreham and, and teams like that. So um, quickly became a, a pretty, pretty, uh, you know, pretty intense rivalry and, and, and a great sport for all of us to be able to play. Um, for me, I, uh, I, I was dead set on, on playing football in college. Um, I had a pretty good high school football career. Um, I thought that, uh, you know, I might end up being the quarterback at Notre Dame one day. That was my dream. Uh, but then I stopped growing at this height in uh, the eighth grade. And, you know, five, ten guys, probably not going to be the, the quarterback at, uh, at, at Notre Dame. So um, lacrosse, uh, you know, quickly became an, an avenue for me to go and get a great education and, and play at the highest level um, that I could play at Division One. And, um, you know, that was uh, really what kind of came together in my junior year as our team was getting better and we were competing to, to win the state championship um, I was starting to realize that, you know, lacrosse was going to be my avenue. And, and on that state championship run and on into that summer with the Long Island Empire team, um, that's when the recruiting really picked up for me. And um, Coach Pressler you know, had a chance to see me play. Coach Alberici um, was the offensive coordinator at the time at Duke. Um, and, uh, you know, so I was recruited heavily by, by Duke, um, Virginia, Princeton. Those were kind of my top three um, among some others. But um, really what, what it came down to was the conversations I had both with Coach Pressler and with, uh, with Coach Alvarisi about the Duke program at the time because it wasn't quite as fashionable to go to Duke um, in that era uh, as it is today. Uh, they weren't really 
winning national championships. They weren't, you know, going to final fours like they are now. They weren't, there was no team of the decade. Um, and actually the, the teams of that decade were Princeton and Virginia. <laughs> they were, they were winning all the time. Um, but I remember when, when coach Pressler sat me down and, you know, he said to me, Hey, listen, you know, you can be a part of the, the, the first group, you know, the, the next wave uh, to help take our program to the next level. Um, that really hit home to me. And that was something that I was interested in because that's kind of how I was raised, how I was brought up and uh, to go in and, and try and help, you know, a program take the next step was really important to me and something that, you know, I was really passionate about and obviously it didn't hurt that Duke was one of the top schools in the country yeah. academically in that align, um, you know, great athletics, um, great location, all that, you know, but um, coach Pressler and coach Alberici were the ones that, that I wanted to go and play for. I feel like that at around that time in your class, the, the recruiting did take a step up to another level of recruits. And I remember, I can't remember who all the players are. You can probably remind me, but you, your empire team was sick. And I just remember, all these guys considering and then ending up going to Duke. Yeah. Yeah. We had, uh, it was, it was like, you know, not only just our empire team, but you know, the other teams that were in New York state and then some of the, the Baltimore teams, we used to go down and play that, uh, that Maryland all-star team every year, the long Island team. And, um, that was also right about the time when the, uh, under 19, uh, the tryouts were going on. And, and, um, that was a team that I played on and, and, you know, one of my, uh, one of my, uh, you know, friends and, and, you know, I guess you can call him the recruiting rivals a little bit was uh, Owen Daly. And uh, Owen was the first oh, yeah. one to in that class. And he went to Princeton um, out of McDonough school. And then I was the second guy to, to commit. And we were on uh, both those visits together, uh, both to Princeton and Duke. And he made the decision to go to Princeton and I made the decision to go to Duke. And, uh, but yeah, the empire team was, was littered with talent. Um, you know, guys went all over the place. We had a bunch of guys that ended up coming to Duke, um, you know, guys like Kevin Brennan, uh, we're on that team and Eric Southerd, um, and then there was quite a few others. Um, Danny Kachi was one of the guys on that team. Oh, yeah. And Brian Moran was on that team. We, uh, we, we had some, we had some studs for sure. It was, it was great. That was a great team. Where were the empires that summer? Uh, empires were up in Rochester. Um, we played oh, yeah. Rochester, New York. I think, uh, university of Rochester is where, where we were. I Actually, I think the games were at Nazareth. That's right. I remember. And, and the USA-Canada game went on right in the middle of that. Do you remember that? That's right. That's right. The epic comeback. That was right. Yep. That was, uh, that was a big, big week for lacrosse, no doubt. That was actually my very first recruiting event as a head coach at the Empire Games uh, late July 1998. Yep. That's a big one to start off with. That's, uh, I, I missed I miss those. I miss, that, was, that was so fun to play in and I had the opportunity to recruit there um, younger, a little bit earlier in my career when I was an assistant at Duke and, and then first couple of years and then obviously it went away. But what a, what a cool event that was to participate in and also to recruit at. I know. It's so sad that it's, uh, that it's just gone by the wayside. I mean, those were the days watching those epic battles, you know? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. So you ended up at Duke, um, graduated in 03. Give us a little um, rundown on on the progression of how that went for you as a player and for the team. Yeah, um, you know, going to Duke was a decision that that I have never regretted, never will regret. And you know, the opportunity to go and, and play for Coach Pressler um, was was one that was really important to me. I, I had a great connection with him through the recruiting process and. Um, you know, being the son of a coach, um, I think I was able to relate to him really well. 
um, and, and understand what he was looking for, what he was asking for. Um, you know, he was someone that um, was certainly, uh, you know, he was he was a, a tough coach. He was he was hard on you um, and, and showed you some tough love, but at the same time, um, would mentor you and, and show you the way. And um, I think for me, I, I, I was used to that. Um, that's how I was raised. Um, that's how my dad treated me um, at home and and on his team. And I really enjoyed that. And the relationship that I built because of that with Coach Pressler was one that still goes on today. Um, you know, with him being up at Bryant, um, and you know all the the trials and tribulations through that relationship, um, we've only grown stronger and someone I talk to, you know, every single week, um, if not more. So uh, grateful for that. And then uh, obviously, you know, playing offense for a coach job, uh, helping a relationship with him uh, was huge. And it's pretty crazy now that, uh, you know, we, we do battle every year and, you know, it seems like uh, Lehigh and Army are, are, are crushing each other and competing for uh, League championships every year so. Um, that's been fun to, to be able to stay connected with Coach A and, and you know, keep, uh, keep getting it after, after it with him. But um, my time at Duke was awesome. Um, obviously, the, the friends that I made, um, I met my wife there. Uh, she was a tennis player. Um, you know, just uh, unbelievable relationships formed um, in, in all areas, and I'm really grateful for that opportunity. Um, on the lacrosse field, I thought we had some, some great great wins um, we my sophomore year junior year we, we won the ACC championships um, we were a goal away from the final four two times in my career um, my freshman year we lost to Virginia um, in the quarterfinals at Hopkins that was uh, in the year 2000 um, and then in uh, 2002 we lost to Syracuse uh, team with uh, Mikey Powell and Josh Kaufman and uh, Michael Springer on attack and we lost to them by a goal at Hofstra in the quarterfinals. So um, we, were, we were close to getting over that hump. We never got there. Um, but I, I was really grateful that I, was, I had the opportunity to, to help kind of set the table because the next wave of recruits that came in, you know, it was guys like Matt Zash and, you know, Danny Flannery and um, Matt Danowski, Zach Greer, all those guys, you know, they, they're all guys that stayed with us on our their recruiting trips and um, you know, that was really the, the next wave that, that, you know, helped uh, Duke to get to the next step. And you know, that, that was, that was, you know, something that we're, we're very proud to, to be a, a small part of. So um, great experience overall, um, a lot of good victories, but the lessons learned are, are ones that I, I still carry with me today. For sure. And then you ended up um, staying on after you graduated or how did, the, how did it work that you got back on the staff there after you graduated? Yeah, so my first year out um, when I graduated, um, you know, I was playing professionally. I got drafted to Rochester uh, to play for the Rattlers. Um, Guy Van Arsdale was the coach uh, that year, so he drafted me. Um, and then I, I, was, I didn't get into coaching right away. Um, my, my first year, I went, I worked at Brine uh, up in Milford, Mass. And um, I was part of their, their marketing team up there for a year and um, had a great experience doing that, but realized that as close as I was to the game, I needed to be closer. And, um, you know, coaching was something that was in the blood. Obviously my father, you know, is, is a high school football coach like we talked about. And I wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, that was something that I at least pursued. So um, after a year at Brian, uh, went out looking to, to try and get into coaching. And um, I had two interviews. Uh, the first one was with Jeff Tambroni uh, when, when he took over at Cornell. Um, and and the second one was with Lars Tiffany uh, when he took over at Stony Brook. And um, I ended up uh, taking the Stony Brook job. Uh, made really good sense for me um, just because, you know, growing up, 
you know, a stone's throw away from the Stony Brook campus. I was able to, to live at home, uh, save some cash, um, and uh, obviously learn from, uh, from Coach Tiffany. And uh, Lars and I developed a great relationship uh, in that year and uh, so much learning. Um, and then that next year after Stony Brook was when uh, Joe Alvarisi got named the Army head coach. Uh, so a spot opened up on Coach Pressler's staff, and that's when he asked me to come back and, uh, and, and join him at, at Duke. So um, I was there for two years. Um, you know, my first year was with Coach Pressler, um, and then obviously the, the Duke lacrosse hoax uh, happened, and Coach Pressler uh, was let go, and, and then I stayed on for one more year um, with John Donowski, and that was uh, 2007. And... Um, the year after that, um, we, we played in the national championship game that year. That was when we lost to, to Hopkins uh, by a goal in 07. Um, and then I was hired at Lehigh in the summer of 2007. Yeah, what a, I mean, what a whirlwind, right? I mean, going from player to in the business world, a couple, couple years as an assistant and then being a head coach. Um, what was it like uh, for you to be such a young head coach um, and how to, you know, really how to figure it all out? when all of a sudden everything is the buck stops with you on everything. Yeah. I think the experience that I had at Duke uh, really helped me to, to be more ready to be a head coach at an earlier stage than most, um, you know, just going through everything that we went through in that, that 2006 year, um, you know, watching, you know, the, the season get canceled, um, watching, you know, coach Pressler get let go, um, you know, and then literally working with the, uh, players, the parents, the alumni to try and save the program um, because there, it was a very real possibility that there wasn't going to be a Duke lacrosse program anymore. And I don't know how many people actually realize that out there, that uh, that it was really close to happening. Um, and due to, to some really great work by the captains of that team, um, there was one young man in particular uh, by the name of Eddie Douglas, um, who was a, a captain and um, what a what a brilliant young man who you know helped to you know really formulate a, a a guiding mission statement for for the program and for the team and present that to the president and um, you know with a lot of support from not just the team but their parents and the alumni. Um, the, president Broadhead was was able to reinstate the program. Uh, you know he made me the uh, for that summer, um, and you know I learned so much in that three month period. Um, I learned a lot actually from coach Pressler um, just because even though he was told he wasn't allowed to be the coach at Duke anymore, uh, when they named me the interim head coach, he didn't just fade into the sunset and be bitter. Um, you know, he helped me, you know, to, to help to sustain and further what he started. And I think the, the character that he displayed through all of that, you know, when, when he was no longer allowed to lead what he had built, you know, basically from scratch, you know, he was helping me to figure out which recruits the call and, you know, how, how I should handle that. And he said, you know, Kevin, you need to go and, and need to home visit this guy right, right away. He's a, he's our top guy. And I'd only been there for, you know, a few months. So I didn't really know too much about the recruits. He was telling me which coaches the call for scheduling. Um, it was really incredible. Um, you know, here he is no longer the coach there and he's telling me what to do because he cares so much about the people who make up that program. So I learned really right then and there, I had learned about that through Coach Pressler when I played for him, um, but I learned even more uh, through that experience about how, how you treat people 
Um, and that's ultimately what matters. <clears throat> and I have taken that with me every step of the way throughout my coaching career and something that I will never forget. Um, so I think through that, and then obviously when John Donosky got hired and, and learning from him, um, you think about that, you know, I, I was only an assistant coach for three years, but the people that I work for, you know, yeah. Lars Tiffany, Mike Pressler, John Donowski in three years as a young yeah. assistant coach. Um, you know, so you kind of get a crash course and what it takes to be a leader and, and what it takes to be a head coach. And um, I think that really helped me to be ready at a young age. I was 26 years old, you know, when I went through the interview process at, at Lehigh and, you know, I, I felt extremely confident and felt like I was ready to be a head coach. Yeah, for sure. Um, give us a little, um, shed a little light, if you would, on what the difference is. Compare and contrast uh, Lars, Tiffany, Mike Pressler, and John Donowski. Yeah, um, I, think, I think they are all phenomenal at what they do, and I think they all do it a little bit differently. Um, you know, the, the thing I learned most about Lars is, is about – the uh, the details and the fundamentals. Um, I think his his mind for the cross is is unbelievable. Um, you know the things that he sees. Um, he you know to me it's uh, you know it's almost like a beautiful mind. Like he can see the cross just a little bit differently. Um, and then he has a great way of translating that into game plans and and into action in a way that his players can understand it. And uh, I also learned about work ethic. Um, you know just watching the way that he went about business and. You know, for me as a as a young guy, um, you know, I, I was living at home. Um, I was single, and uh, I was able to kind of go step for step with Lars and, and his work ethic, and how how much time he spent in the office and the film room, um, all the things he did in recruiting. Uh, I learned a lot about uh, work ethic uh, from Lars, and and just watching the way that he got after it. Um, you know, from you know, the hours spent in, in the office to the hours on, on recruiting and, you know, very meticulous um, in the way that he approached it, um, was always writing down notes, would always review his notes and refer back to them. And um, I just learned a lot about, you know, what it took to, to be a head coach. And obviously for him, uh, this was his first time doing it. Um, it was his first year as a head coach at Stony Brook and came from Penn State. Um, you know, so I think uh, you know, I learned a lot from him. And then you know, the, the thing I, th I say always about Coach Pressler is that, you know, he operates his program like he's the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Um, there's nobody who's more organized. There's nobody who prepares better. Um, you know, he truly understands what it takes to, to, to lead a program and, and lead his people. Um, and he's not afraid to, uh, you know, to, to make sure that he delegates um, in certain areas. And, uh, but he's always making sure that, that he is the one that, is overseeing it all. And um, I just look at the way that he planned practices. I look at the, uh, you know, down to the, the second, um, everything was scheduled out and there was always a plan. Um, and he also, you know, really helped us to understand um, just the, the overall level of toughness that we had to play with and the overall um, work ethic that we needed to bring to it. And he always demanded that out of us. And I learned that uh, from coach Pressler. Um, and then, you know, John Donowski, um, watching him operate was, uh, was really special as well. Um, you know, he came in and his commitment to fundamentals was something that really jumped off the page. Um, you know, the, the way that he approached every single day offensively, um, you know, really didn't dive into the big picture schemes until later on. I know he's become famous for that. I got to witness that, um, you know, 
firsthand uh, as an assistant coach for him. Um, he had a unique experience um, just coming in. His son was on the team and watching how he handled that and, you know, to, to join um, into that group um, because they had already been at Duke and now he was kind of the newcomer. Um, you know, so I learned from him, um, you know, how to really, you know, make it fun for the guys um, and also to, uh, to make sure that they were really taking care of the little things and taking care of the fundamentals. That was really important. Um, quick question about fundamentals. How, how would you define fundamentals as it relates to John Donowski's implementation of fundamentals? Like everybody throws that word around, but what does it really mean? Because it seems like at Duke, fundamentals is, is not just, you know, throwing overhand and catching, but there's, there's a lot of skill development that you might sort of look at too. I think the biggest thing is the overall time commitment to it. Um, honestly, um, cause you know, he's at this point, he's done a a million, uh, clinics. He's done a million chalk talks. He does his, uh, you know, his online coaches clinics, he does all that stuff. So, um, most people are familiar with the drills that he does. And a lot of people have, have replicated that. Uh, but I think it's just the overall time commitment that, you know, it's, it's one of those things as a coach where you never feel like you have enough time. You know, you feel like you need to move on to, you know, the next thing, the next drill, you got to build this progression to get ready to play. And, yeah. um, you know, really what, what he said was it, it doesn't matter what offense you run. It doesn't matter um, what clear you run. If, if, you, if you're throwing the ball away, if you're missing the cage, then it's going to be ineffective. And um, I think it's more so just the, the overall time commitment and the, his literal commitment to saying that we're going to stay the course and also going back to it. Um, if things aren't working and you know, maybe the offense is stalling, you know, his default mechanism is say, you know what, we're going to go, we're going to do a shooting camp, uh, shooting training camp over, a, over a, a spring break. And, you know, we're going to focus more on this. Our practices will be an hour long, but we're going to take an hour and a half and we're gonna go and we're going to shoot every single day. Um, so I think there's just a, uh, is, is a non-negotiable commitment to saying that we are going to get after it and hammer the fundamentals. I love that. So great. The commitment to skill, your biggest upside as a team is making your players better, right? Definitely. Without a doubt. So you take that, you take, you take on the job, um, 2000 season, first season at Lehigh, um, you're 26 or 27 year old head coach. Um, you hire your buddy Taylor Ray, who I just did uh, a podcast with, and he was about the same age. Um, and uh, pretty awesome experience for you two guys to be able to build a program together as young guys and former teammates. Oh, that was so cool. What a cool experience. Um, you know, I, uh, Taylor and I had, had talked about this, um, you know, when I was uh, we're both a little bit earlier in our careers. You know, he had started out, he was at, uh, at Queens University in Charlotte and um, you know, as a graduate assistant, and he had moved back to, uh, to Alberta and he was actually living in Cal- Calgary at the time. And I said, Hey, listen, like, I don't know what's going to happen. I really want to be a head coach at some point. If I am, you're going to be my first call. And I'd love to, to try and do this thing together. Um, and I don't think any of us realized that it would be that soon. Um, so lo and behold, I got offered the job at Lehigh. Uh, my first call was to Taylor. Um, I said, Taylor, I need you, buddy. Like, we're, we're, we talked about this. Let's do it. And he's like, I didn't think it would be this soon. We talked about it like a year ago. Um, but was able to convince him and, and his wife, Lauren, uh, to, to come on down. And um, it took a while, actually, to process it um, because we had to go through all the international paperwork and get a work visa and do everything that we needed to do. 
Um, and it took so long that actually they didn't drive down from Alberta until the first day of practice of fall ball. And I'll never forget this, but we first day of practice, uh, I think our practice started that day at like uh, two o'clock or something like that. And uh, Taylor and his wife pull up in a U-Haul at 145 to the Lehigh field <laughs> and jumps out. I handed him a whistle and we went out and we coached our first practice together wow. um, in the fall of, uh, of 2007. It was crazy. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's kind of how things got started. And um, we were able to, uh, to hire a graduate assistant at the time. Uh, Brendan Callahan was, uh, was our grad assistant. And um, now, Brendan's now the, the head coach up at Dartmouth. Um, obviously, Taylor's now at St. Joe's. And um, so that was our staff. And then I had my dad as our, uh, our volunteer assistant, Coach Cassis Sr. Um, and that was our crew. And, and we had a blast. Um, we, uh, we started out, we had an office that was, uh, you know, the size of a, you know, of a, of a coat closet. And uh, all four of us were on top of each other in there. And um, we had to stagger our, our phone calls that we made because, you know, we'd talk over each other. And, um, but that's really where, uh, you know, where we made our bones and, and you know, kind of where, where we were able to, to create um, the magic that we were able to, to see uh, a few years down the line when we were able to, to compete and win championships. Yeah, so much fun. I, I have a question. Um, you guys were both young and still, still playing professionally. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I'm really interested to hear how you – as you continue to develop as a player that you were taking what you were learning and applying it to your coaching and, and how you think it helped you and maybe some, some instances where it really paid off. Yeah. Um, that, that's a great point because it was a lot of fun to be able to do that. And I think we're, we're both grateful to, uh, to Lehigh and the administration for allowing us to, to be able to pursue that part of our lives because we were so young and, you know, both of us were 27 years old and we took over, uh, Taylor was one of the best uh, defensemen in the NLL at the time. Um, he was an all pro and playing for team Canada. Um, you know, for me, I, I had played in the league at the MLL for a bunch of years and I was training to, to try out and play for team USA in 2010. Um, so what we ended up doing both of us is, was luckily there were teams in Philadelphia at the time. Um, so we we're able to, to negotiate some trades and I got traded to the Philadelphia barrage um, actually, you can see my jersey up over my shoulder there. And uh, um, I played for the Barrage for two years as I was the head coach for Lehigh. And uh, Taylor got traded. Uh, he was playing out for the Calgary Roughnecks, and he got traded to the, the Philadelphia Wings. Um, so that really helped, um, obviously, to, to have something close by that we were able to, to go and shoot, to, uh, shoot out to and, and, you know, hit practices and games. Um, I think it also helped that at the time, neither of us had kids, you know, we were just yeah. newly married, both of us. And, uh, you know, we were, we had wives that were understanding uh, of allowing us to go, you know, pursue uh, our careers, both, uh, you know, in coaching and, and playing professionally. And we were able to do that for a few years. But um, I have always said that that time period was, was probably my, my period of biggest growth, um, not just as a coach, but also as a player. Um, you know, I think, um, being able to do both, uh, helped me to, to become better at both. And, um, you know, just looking at some of the guys I, I played alongside, you know, in Philadelphia, you know, I was playing alongside guys like Ryan Boyle. Um, you know, it was, uh, you know, learning from a guy like that and then playing for Tony Resch, you know, he was, he was my coach in Philly and I got to learn from him. 
Um, you know, then I went up and played in Boston for a year and you know, played alongside Paul Rabel and, you know, saw what it was like, you know, being one of the best midfielders in the game and, you know, play for a guy named Billy Day and, you know, Billy, obviously, and, you know, learning from him and, you know, then playing for Team USA and, um, you know, being a part of that in 2006, you know, played for, uh, for John Desco and, you know, 2010, you know, had the ability to play again for Coach Pressler and what an experience that was. Um, you know, for Team USA when, when oh, he was yeah. uh, the head coach. So um, I learned a ton. Um, it, it definitely made me a better player. I mean, I could see the game differently. Um, yeah. Everything really slowed down because I was used to trying to put my players in the right positions to make plays. And, um, you know, for me, um, as I got later into my career, um, I realized that I could be a little bit more efficient with how I moved and where I, where I would go. And, um, I'll tell you, I scored a lot more two pointers because I started to do a lot more hidden ball tricks. I started to do, I, I just got pretty cagey in my, old, my, my veteran years and uh, found other ways to, to score goals and help my team. And uh, it was just a lot of fun to be able to do both. When you get to play at the highest level and you're sort of at this cutting edge of skill, how did you translate that to your teams as you develop them, particularly with the experiences that you'd had? with such great coaches that were all about building fundamentals and skills. In my, my first few years, I actually, I, I would suit up and, and play alongside our guys. And, uh, you know, not necessarily in practice, um, because obviously I had to be coaching and, and, and doing uh, the facilitating of practice, but in skill sessions and shooting sessions, um, I, I would take a lot of time and, uh, and, and work with the guys. I would shoot on our goalies. Um, which I, I think I'd like to think made them a lot better. Um, they always enjoyed that. And then, um, you know, specifically guys like uh, you know, two, two of our, our best, uh, you know, kind of superstars early on um, were, were the twins, Roman and uh, Cameron Lau-Gosney. Um, yeah. I developed a great relationship with those guys. And the hours that we spent on the field, um, you know, repping out, you know, dodging and shooting and passing and, you know, footwork, everything in between, um, was able to kind of take bits and pieces of that. Um, I, things that I still draw back on because it, it fits into the way that I play. Um, it, when I was in Rochester, I played in Rochester for four years. I played in Philly for two years. And then I played in, uh, in Boston for one. Um, and that was my seven years of, of playing in the MLL. But when I was in Rochester, our attack on that team, get this, was Casey Powell, Ryan Powell, and John Grant Jr., so, and we didn't win the MLL championship. <laughs> um, I, don't, I still don't know how, um, but, you know, I, I was playing alongside those guys. I was, I was playing the midfield with those guys as our attack and watching what those guys did and being able to take bits and pieces of, the, pieces of that. So case in point, you know, watching John Grant Jr. and some of the things that he did, you know, I went on to coach uh, Dan Taylor. Um, he was an unbelievable lefty Canadian, one of the, the best to ever play at Lehigh. And I was able to work with him on things that I would see Junior do in the game and try and get Dan to do the same thing as a lefty Canadian with a, a similar um, skill set. And I just tried to do that wherever I could. Um, the face-off game, you know, watching that, that's something that we, uh, you know, have really taken a lot of pride in here at Lehigh. Um, and I learned a ton as a coach in 2014 with Team USA. I was in charge of the face-offs. And my two guys uh, on that team were Greg Grenlian and Chris Eck. And taking that, working with those guys, learning from them, and then bringing that back to what we do at Lehigh is something that I, I always thought was, was really important and critical to the overall growth uh, individually and as a team for Lehigh. 
there's been so much evolution in the in the game offensively speaking since you took over in 2007 to now in 2020 um how did you how have you evolved along with the the game itself as from an offensive philosophy perspective yeah i think you know for me as a coach the the evolution really has to do with the players that that we're able to get um you know the the team that we have every single year is different and you know, the way that, that we recruit, you know, obviously we're always going to try and recruit the best players out there, the best athletes. And, you know, I think it, I learned a lot um, coming from Duke because at Duke, we, we kind of had the pick of the litter. Um, you know, we really recruited like 25 guys to get 10 to 12 and that was it. And, you know, then coming to Lehigh, we, we recruit 150 guys to get 10 or 12. And, you know, it's a, it's just a, a you cast a wider net and, when you have the pick of the litter at Duke, you know, you can kind of say, all right, this is the way that we're going to play. And, you know, we're going to fill guys in, into these spots and we can kind of keep that consistent. And obviously there'll be tweaks and, and things like that. Um, but that's the way that I felt about it when I was recruiting as, as the recruiting coordinator at Duke. And then um, coming to Lehigh, I realized that, you know what, like we might not be able to, to have this cookie cutter model every single year. We might need to grab a guy that might be a little bit different um, and then evolve our, our systems. We're always going to have our base systems, but we can evolve it and tweak it a little bit based on the personnel that we have. And um, I felt like that's something that I've really had to develop over my time at Lehigh because, you know, any year, uh, any one year doesn't look like another. Um, obviously, we have some core principles that we're always going to stick to, but um, we might put emphasis in one different area or this set on offense or this type of defense, depending on the people and personnel that we have. Um, but the, the one area that I would say that, that we have 100% evolved in is the face-off game, um, without a doubt, because when I was facing off and, and I did that a ton and in college, uh, the game was much different and there were, you know, very few guys were, were Fogos, you know, and most guys stayed on like myself and, um, it was just a little bit different. And, you know, I think I, honestly, I, I want to say, you know, Chris Searcy was one of the guys that, you know, really revolutionized it in the way that he went about it. And um, we had a few others that, that came along. Think of a guy like Justin Berry at, at Towson. Um, you know, and that, that was just starting to happen in the game. So I think the, uh, the face-off game we've really had to evolve in. And the things that helped me to be successful as a face-off guy were, were uh, less technique-oriented um, and more um, kind of uh, speed, uh, hand quickness, and – making it a 50-50 ground ball and out athleting a guy. Um, and obviously trying to get it to a certain spot, but it was more about getting that ball out and then out athleting him. And I think that's much different than it is uh, today. And we've had to evolve in that area. I've had to evolve um, in the yeah. way that we coach those guys. For sure. What's your uh, philosophy and take on two-man game? How much do you guys play that at Lehigh? A ton. It's a, it's a staple. Um, you know, two-man game is something that – it is, I mean, it's, it's so valuable to what we do. Um, I, I'd venture to say that even if, if, if we didn't have a, a two man game on the ball and off the ball in every offensive set, that was a, that was a, a bad set by our offense. Um, the way that, that we have constructed the offense at Lehigh um, and I've had a couple of different offensive coordinators the last couple of years, but um, those guys and myself have always thought about the game the same way. Um, but I, I've gone back to this as my core. Um, for us, we want to we be a, a, an offense that's based off of misdirection. 
Um, and what I mean by that is uh, that has football roots in it. So uh, when I played for my father uh, back at Comstock High School, you know, they had teams that <clears throat> weren't necessarily the biggest up front. Um, so for us to line up and, you know, go wishbone and, and dive right and dive left, um, we weren't going to win very many games. Um, so my father put in the double wing T set. It was uh, a lot of uh, option uh, counters, um, just a ton of, of linemen pulling. And we had guys that were good athletes, but a little bit smaller. And what we had to use is just misdirection and, and a lot of deception in what we did. I think uh, from a lacrosse standpoint, we try and do a lot of the same type of concepts and getting people to think we're going one way. And then all of a sudden we're going back the other way. And um, we can do that in a lot of different ways, but the two man game on the ball and off the ball is one that we think can help us to do that because it just changes the integrity of the defense. What are some other ways that you try to be uh, deceptive in your team offense? Um, I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, the way, the way that we're initiating and where we're initiating from and just changing the, uh, the points of initiation throughout the course of a set. Um, and then, you know, potentially, um, you know, from set to set. And um, so I think it's, it's, you know, you have your base uh, offensive principles, you, you know, for us, it's a, it's a motion offensive principle, but uh, we also want to make sure that we're changing the, uh, the initiation points and, and how we go about it. Um, but also I think it's, it's going to be, you know, trying to really just put the defense in a, in a very difficult position. And that could be different based on personnel um, in, in every single set. Um, you know, but I think, you know, certainly attacking from behind the goal um, and creating sets where you have fluidity um, to your offense that ends up with an unsettled dodge from behind the goal is something that defenses really struggle with. And, you know, we found a lot of success in that area. Um, you know, so I also think this is you, you know, defensively, the way that teams play defense these days is you know they're they're you know so well prepared for what you're going to do on the first dodge um, that you know we put a, a premium on working the set and making sure that you know we are going to get deep into the set because as you work the set on offense, what happens is the defense just gets closer and closer to the goal yeah. um, and allows you to be more effective, not even with your not only with your dodges but also with two man game that emerges later in a set. Um, so developing that type of misdirection where, you know, potentially, you know, you're, you're setting something up that isn't necessarily going to be to, to score a goal in the first 10 seconds of your set, um, but potentially gets the defense rotating um, so that the next uh, initiation point is where, you know, maybe you're, you're doing it now from, you're initiating from, from 12 yards instead of 18 um, so we work really hard to put ourselves in those positions and to be able to, to attack a, a defense that's on the, on the move and, and on the wheel. Would you say you guys are scripted? You, I think you said you're more motion, so you're not particularly scripted. So in, in, in and of itself, you're, you're going to be deceptive or at least unpredictable in what you're doing. Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, it's, it's more, uh, it, it's, it's more free flowing. Um, obviously there's rules to what we're doing offensively. It's very much a basketball oriented type of offense. Um, you know, and, the, and there's some rules that, that go into it, but at the end of the day, um, we want to put our, our players in the best positions to be successful and allow them to, to play free, um, and not have to be thinking, all right, I need to go from A to B to C 
because that's what the offense tells me to do. Um, we'll have some general rules for them, but at the end of the day, um, we want them to, to, to be free flowing. Um, and I think that, you know, as long as they understand the concepts and what we're trying to achieve, um, a lot of it is uh, in the misdirection is, is, you know, creating matchups um, and then being able to, uh, to, to pick on those matchups, um, you know, because, you know, once you get into the matchup game, you know, that's when you can you know, help your players understand, all right, we, we can now make this predictable. We understand that if our best player gets a short stick in this area, we're going to create slides. Um, and once we create slides and we're in the right spots behind it, we're going to be able to create eventually um, a five on four off the ball that we're going to be able to manipulate, um, you know, and, and, and I've heard you talk about this previously. I agree hundred percent is, you know, when you bring, you know, two man game and even a, a three man game action. Um, now your, your advantage, if you're bringing someone to help um, on the defense, your advantage now becomes a four on three. Right. or a three on two with more space. And, and we're always trying to find ways to create that uh, within the, the framework of our offense, but it just takes time to develop because um, a lot of it's going to be free flowing and trying to figure out what matchups are going to be working best. And, and it really comes back to the individual too. So you have to understand how to, how to play, you know, with the ball and without the ball and in groups and in two man games. And to me, I feel, you know, you mentioned deception in your offense. I feel like deception is the difference between good and great as an individual player, too. You look at the best players in the world, and they're wildly deceptive in everything that they do. Um, how do you teach that and ingrain that in your players? Because at the end of the day, when you're trying to be unpredictable, and as, as individuals, it's so important to be deceptive. Yeah, I think, you know, first and foremost is we try to recruit it. Um, we have the opportunity to, to evaluate that and we try and recruit that. And, um, you know, lacrosse IQ um, is something that we really value. And, you know, the, the offensive IQ of, of, a, of a player is, is something that I, I think is, is pretty easy to see. And, you know, if they're, you know, understanding how a defense is sliding, they can read a defense, um, they can understand the two-man game and, you know, what is going to happen and be able to react to what happens uh, quickly and effectively. Um, I think you, you can evaluate that. You can see that. Um, but then, you know, to, to train that is, is something that just – it takes repetition. Um, it takes an incredible amount of time in the film room uh, to be able to, to show them what, what is going on. Um, and then, you know, to, to be able to set those situations up and work on them um, and that's something that we, we do a ton. Um, the small scale of the offense is, in my opinion, so important. And um, that's something that John Crawley, um, new offensive coordinator um, that came in last year, has, uh, has really harped on. And, and I agree with them 100%. Um, you know, we're, we're spending so many more times on – or so much more time on 2v2s, um, you know, 4v4s. Um, just the, the, the smaller scale of that within the two-man game on the ball and off the ball, um, and then being able to, to help the guys understand, you know, hey, this is, this is the situation that happened, and, you know, this is how we could have reacted differently, and just trying to raise that lacrosse IQ for them um, just through film work and then, you know, overall repetition. Yeah, so interesting, and it's so hard to get people to think this way. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, we teach dodging, we'll work on the techniques of a split dodge or a roll dodge or hesitations and Z dodges and all that. And then we're like, okay, now let's make sure we fake. Yep. And 
The problem is, is the faking is the easiest way to beat somebody. Right. And right. sometimes I feel like we have it backwards as coaches because like the easiest way to be someone is lift your hands up and they put their stick up and you split. Right. And, right. and that's the way that a lot of people actually dodge. Anyways, the best players do that all day. I always talk about a quote from Gary gate where I asked him about his favorite dodging techniques that he taught, you know, sometime in the nineties. He's like, well, I don't know. I just kind of wait for someone to overplay me. And then I beat them. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that makes sense. And that's, you know, watching him play, that's, that's exactly what he did. And, yeah, I, I agree with that. And, you know, for me, uh, it was a little bit different for, you know, I, I was always the faster guy, the better athlete. So um, I would just bank on running to my right hand faster than they could run to my right hand. And then I would shoot it when I had some space. So yeah. um, obviously that, that works to some degree for a very few uh, percentage of the guys. So, um, you know, we need to be able to, to teach them differently, but I, I do think this, um, I, I would say we put a higher point of emphasis on, the two man game and what can come from that than we do actually one-on-one -on -one individual dodging. Interesting. Um, we don't ignore it um, because we're going to need it, especially when we're trying to manipulate matchups and, you know, be able to get guys in, in, in situations that are going to be advantageous. But um, we understand that <clears throat> we can make our lives a lot easier if we can initiate through two man game and get several of them throughout the course of, of, a, of a set um, you know, because I believe the deeper you get into it and, and the more you go back to the two man game, the way harder it is to defend, um, the closer yeah, you can get that defense to the, to the, to the goal. Um, and, and I call it the paint. So pack the paint, um, the, the less room for error out of the, out of the two man game and the, the better shot that you're going to create as an offense. Totally. And it's not like you're not dodging in the two man game. You know, it's still, you still got to get, you know, draw, draw two and get to the net if they don't come to you. But, um, but it just allows you more things to fake. Honestly, there's more things that the defense has to think about and therefore makes it a little bit easier to distract them on all the misdirection that you're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. All right. Let's turn the, uh, turn the, the topic of conversation to defense. Um, what's your uh, defensive philosophy at Leon? Um, defensive philosophy, pretty simple, is um, you know, we want to be multiple and we want to be aggressive. Um, that's really the, the two main things that we look for. And um, you know, the, the multiple part of it, if you look at that for us, you know, we have um, quite a different, different uh, you know, variety of things that we can do. Um, you know, our man-to-man our -man defense is, is one that um, you know, is, is it's a sliding defense uh, for sure. Um, something that we, we have looked to do, um, you know, for years here. Um, but to be able to uh, mess with slide timing, um, turn it on, turn it off, um, that's a big thing for us. And, you know, be able to, to you know, kind of either, you know, go out and, and, and come hard and, and dictate that tempo. Um, and we like to do that in particular um, early on. And then, you know, once, uh, once teams get used to something, uh, be able to flip it and go, go to a different direction. So, um, you know, but at our core, we're a slide and recovery defense. Um, we like to go, go hard, um, you know, and then, you know, for, for us, it's about, you know, making sure that our recovery is crisp and that we're ready to defend the next dodge. Um, and, you know, we feel like that is something that is, is, you know, I think, people are pretty good at, at dodging and recovering to the first dodge. Um, but that getting in position and being able to slide and recover to the next dodge is, is really where it, where it gets tricky. Um, so that's kind of our core. Um, but then, 
Um, we've really spent a lot of time developing a zone defense. Um, and our zone defense has been something, especially in the shot clock era, that has really been effective. And, you know, our ability to move in and out, be multiple going from man to zone um, within, the, uh, within the course of a set um, has really, um, really helped us and has forced offenses to struggle. So um, for us, you know, we always felt that the, if the offense was comfortable and they were able to dictate the tempo, then they were probably going to generate a great shot and have the ability to score. Um, but if we can dictate that tempo and we can go from heavy pressure um, to potentially packing it in on the zone, depending on what time we are in, in the shot clock, um, their mindset really switches. And, you know, that's something that, that we've really taken pride in to be able to do that and develop both of those. Can you do it during the flow of uh, the offense or do you wait until it goes out of bounds? Um, mostly we're, we're doing it uh, when the ball is out of bounds, but you know, there are times where we can, we can flow into it. I mean, there's, there, you know, there's a couple different, as you know, a couple different types of zone, um, you know, for an invert zone, that's something that's pretty easy for us to, to, to yeah. get into um, on the fly, but a true zone defense uh, that we like to run is something that we'll typically, uh, you know, we'll, we'll mess with, um, you know, coming off the end line, um, coming out of timeouts um, and being able to, to kind of keep people on their toes that way um, is something that we really, really take pride in. Um, but definitely, definitely trying to dictate that tempo and, and keeping uh, offenses on their, uh, on their heels is something that we really like to try and do. And then how about um, if you're in zone and it's almost easier to flow into man from zone? Yep. If yep. you're not worried about your matchups and then, and do you ever do that where you, you know, you're in your zone and all of a sudden you can kind of get into man and start putting a little pressure on. Yeah, definitely. Um, again, especially with the shot clock, you know, if you're, if you're in zone and, you know, let's say the ball goes out of bounds, you know, and there's, you know, nine seconds left, you know, flipping the man and going to put heavy pressure on the ball. You know, there's, there's so many things that you can do, but that's definitely something that we like to do. And, um, you know, I think our zone defense um, has been has been tremendous for us the last couple of years. Um, our defensive personnel, in particular, um, has been one that you know has uh, kind of put a high priority on ball skills and being able to pick passes and get into the passing lanes, knock the ball to the ground, and, and get up and out. And um, you know, our, our ability to do that in zone. Um, has been really good and it's really frustrated teams and you know we've had some guys that you know haven't necessarily been the biggest most athletic guys on the last couple of years so you know just lining up and, and saying hey we're going to go play man to man and and not slide as much um, you know we said hey listen let's let's put these guys in some spots where you know we can pack it in got a good goaltender um, you know, let's uh, you know let's let's force them to thread the needle a little bit on a pack in zone and teams have really struggled with that so that's been fun to play with do you do you find that there are drills that you can run for zone that are also great for man yeah definitely um i think that you know if you look at, at its core um you know we we spend a lot of time on being able to pick passes and again i think that's something you can recruit certainly and you can evaluate but at the end of the day there is a skill to that um, that we take a lot of pride in and that we get after. And, you know, for the way that we're playing defense and man, um, it, it, we're going to put a, a premium on being able to do that too. And, um, you know, I always look at that as, you know, it's, there's a lot of ways to steal a possession. And, 
you know, if we can steal a possession by picking off a pass and, you know, looking to do that, then that would be ideal. And we put a premium on that and the way that we grade our games and stat our games, um, you know, and, and that's something that, that, that I think for man and zone, you know, you can definitely get after. And we've done that a ton on the small scale and also on a bigger scale. When you're trying to get your players to be great at picking off passes, do you feel like it's important to just put your stick into the lane or are you baiting it and actually going to pick it by making them think there is a lane? Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, it's, it's more, it's more baiting um, than it is, you know, putting a stick in the lane. Um, sometimes uh, in particular in zone and man down, um, not necessarily to pick a pass, but just to, to uh, deter a pass, putting your stick in the lane would be really important. And, you know, with in doing that, you can you can honestly you know determine ball movement and you know just by having your stick position that way. But to actually pick a pass, very few times that that our guys are picking passes is the, is the stick already out there. Right. Um, you know, it's more about the readiness of their stick, the way that they hold it, um, and it's not they can't they can't have it down if their stick is all the way down at the ground. They're not right. going to get up in time. Um, but it's got to be low enough where the lane appears to be wide open to be able to pick it. Right. And sometimes when your stick is out and in the lane, that's like, you know, the cue for great feeders to throw it right, right between your stick and your head, because <laughs> right. you're never going to actually pick it, even right. though it seems like it could deter it. Yeah. Um, on an individual defense basis, um, how I'm always interested to hear how coaches teach one on one defense from the perspective of with, uh, with a pole. Um, are you backing off or are you moving laterally or both? Um, so we, we don't like to back off. Um, we, we typically want to hold our ground. Um, I think the one thing that, that I've learned and in my football background and then working with uh, my assistant coach on the defensive end, Will Scudder, and, and he's got a football background. And, you know, we, we think about it more as a, a defensive back, um, you know, trying to cover a wide receiver off the line of scrimmage. And um, obviously, you know, they're going to they're gonna back off a little bit. But on the initial point of contact and a bump and run in particular, um, they're going to they're gonna hold their ground and then be able to have what we call a rear foot push off. Um, so a lot of times, you know, guys are, if they're going to try and bump and run, um, the, the way not to do it is to take that step forward, that false step, and then it becomes a lunge. Um, and I think in, in lacrosse, you'll see a lot of guys on the initial point of contact do that. Um, they'll step forward, they'll lunge, they'll get their nose out over their toes, and, you know, then they're, then they're toast. It's done. So... Uh, for us, we, we teach patience on the initial dodge and, you know, being able to hold our ground and then allow the offensive player to commit. And then we're going to rear foot push and then meet him at the spot that he's trying to get to. Uh, this way, there's no lunging. Um, and then obviously from there, you know, we have to be able to get our hands on and, and start to, to chop or V-hold or whatever direction we're going in. Um, but I think that that's an important concept that we spend a ton of time in our approach work. Uh, trying to get our guys to understand and to do. Um, so that's kind of how we approach the one-on-one -on -one, uh, defense. Yeah. I think it's a little different as if you have a pole as opposed to a short stick. How so? Because you just have, for, for a pole, you, you have a little bit more room for error. <laughs> um, okay. You know, the stick's a little bit longer. Um, it, you know, you can, you can come down with a little bit more force um, if a guy has a step on you to be able to, to widen him out. Um, getting them away from the goal, depending on where you are on the field. Um, and then just with the short stick, you know, obviously shorter stick, just a little bit less margin for error um, to be able to do that. But this sort of lateral movement and, and making a point of contact 
you know, a, a little bit ahead of where they're going to meet them there is, is the similarity. Yeah. I think, I think the holding of the ground is probably the most important uh, um, aspect that we teach because uh, we don't want guys moving forward and we don't want guys retreating because we feel either way puts you at a disadvantage. Yeah. There's so many people that do teach backing off backpedaling um, you know, maybe throwing a poke while you're backpedaling, hoping that they make an early move and then you can just run with them. Mm -hmm. which makes perfect sex, se sense except for the, the hope part <laughs> because if they don't make an early move, you're really not in a great position to get your hands on anybody. Is that part of the reason why you're doing it that way? It is. And, and also just the, you know, what's going on behind it. Um, so for us, um, you know, to, to set up the slide package and, and our fills and just understanding off the ball defense is we would prefer to know earlier rather than later if our guy is, is getting beat. Um, because if you're backing off, it, there becomes some indecision that, that gets created. You don't know if the guy's beat or not, even though if you're defending someone from behind the goal, as you back up, he could be at goal line extended, which is, that's trouble. Um, but he doesn't look beat. He doesn't look like he's in trouble. So we don't go. And next thing you know, the ball's in the back of the net. Um, so if, if we're able to hold our ground, um, you know, out at our, our approach arc, you know, which we define for our guys, um, and then we always say, hey, listen, if, if we don't get hands on, you know, if we're not in, in what we call a Velcro position um, on the ball, by the time that that Dodger enters our approach arc, then that means we're sending a slide, you know, so holding our ground at the approach arc is something that we it's, it's, it's the number one staple of our on ball defense. I love it. Um, what is your stick position? Um, so many people teach, you know, approaches with your stick out and lead poke. Um, and then you watch some of the best players in the world and their sticks are more like a 45 degree angle. And I think the difference is if you want to be able to get your hands on somebody and really get a cross check, it's hard to go from a lead poke situation to a cross check. But I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah, we, we definitely do not have our guys with their stick out in front and throwing a poke. Um, I, I honestly think throwing a poke is – is, is maybe the worst thing that you can do unless you land it. Um, because I, I think the, at the end of the day, you know, the, the 45 is the way that we go about it as well. Having that 45 degree angle um, is, is where we want the guys to be um, so that we're loaded to either be able to cross check or, you know, quickly recoil and throw a check um, that would be a lot harder than a poke check. Um, it also, you know, helps us to hold our ground because I always find that if guys throw a poke check, then they're also taking a step forward with their foot. Um, and that would go against our, our technique of being able to, to hold ground and have a rear foot push off. So um, I, I also have taken this just from watching, you know, some of the best defenders out there up close and personal and, um, you know, seeing guys, you know, like, uh, you know, Brian Curtis, you know, played with him and uh, Pat McCabe, you know, Team USA and, you know, up to guys more recently like Tucker Durkin and, coaching some of those guys um you know that's that's how they go about it whether they know it or not they have their stick at a 45 yeah uh, they're looking to match feet hold ground um and then get physical um as guys get to a dangerous spot i've been watching a fair amount of matt landis film lately and he is just a perfect example of that um the way he moves laterally um i don't know if you've watched much i did a couple webinars actually with him I did five breakdowns with Matt Landis on his matchups with Rambo, Cuccinello, Jordan Wolf, Connor Fields, and Lyle Thompson. Really interesting. I'll shoot it to you. But, but listening to him talk about the way he goes through it, it's pretty much exactly what you're talking about here. Yeah, so, that's great. 
the, the Notre Dame guys definitely have great fundamentals in the way to defend. Yeah. It's just uh, there's, there is a time to, to approach with a poke, and, and that's in a rotation, right? I mean, you're going to have to get your stick out if you're going to a shooter. Definitely. Definitely. It also, for us, you know, we, you're going to have to do that. But, you know, the way that we always look at it is, you know, in, in, in that rotation, if we can get out with our feet and, you know, also have our stick ready to get into a passing lane and potentially pick one, that's another way to, to defend the set as well. Um, so kind of always in that, that 45 degree, whether, you know, you get to a poke check or get the stick up in a passing lane, depending on what happens, right? You never know what's yep, going to happen, yep. but be ready. Um, I almost equate it to, again, a lot, a lot of, a lot of our stuff translates from, from hoops, you know, from basketball terminology, but, um, I, I don't think the triple threat position is, is just for offensive players. I think it's for the defense as well. Um, in the way that you approach and how you move. Um, in the rotation to be able to achieve many things depending on what happens if a guy winds up to shoot uh, if a guy's looking the feed if he's going to dodge you have to be able to do uh, or to react to all of those um, in, in, in a half a second cool uh, you mentioned v-hold some people are uh, v-hold guys some people are not um, do you guys teach v-holds and how do you use that and why do you believe in it if you do yeah, so we, we're a little bit of a hybrid. Um, you know, I just, I'm a big believer that when, when you know, we're, we're certainly going to coach our guys up, um, you know, to, to, to be, you know, Lehigh the cross defenseman. But um, when we get them, a lot of times their, their habits are, are already built up and they have, you know, developed a way of doing it that works for them. So there have been, in, in, our, in our defense, there have been guys that we have allowed to V-hold because they're really good at it. And there are guys that we don't even teach them how to do it because they've never done it. Um, I do think to do it well, you have to have some background in doing it um, earlier in your high school career or, or, or younger. Um, you know, but teaching it is something that I think is, uh, it, it, it's, it's good to do um, as long as there is a little bit of a history to it. So um, you know, with the V-hole, we've had some guys that have been really good at it. I think that a lot of it depends on how you're going to slide um, if you need to underneath of it. So we think a lot about that is, all right, what technique on the ball is going to be most beneficial to the way that we want to slide behind it? <clears throat> so, um, you know, we, if we're going to have a team that we feel is going to be great at sliding coma, you know, coming across the crease, then we're going to teach our guys the V-hole. And we're going to try and do that as much as we can. And, and we're going to recruit guys that can do that um, because we feel like that's, you know, inevitably going to be able to turn somebody uh, underneath. And then if you're sliding coma, you can come right to their face. It puts them in a tough spot. Um, you know, if we're going to be able, if we're going to be a defense that's going to slide, you know, late from the crease, or if we're going to come, uh, um, you know, top down adjacent, then I don't think we want to V-hold guys because then we're telling them to go underneath. So I think a lot of it really depends on what happens behind the ball. Um, with the actual technique and, and skill of the V-hole, um, I think when you do it is probably the most important thing. Um, you know, because if, if, you're, if you're late to that V-hole, you know, you're basically giving the offensive guy what he wants, right? So if you're doing it at five and five is when you're going to your V-hole, then you're just allowing, to get in, allow, allowing yourself to get inside rolled and you're doing it. So, um, you know, we, we talk a lot about, um, we call it the plus two, um, which is two yards ab above GLE. Um, which is where you need to get hands on. Um, so as guys are coming from behind the goal, um, in particular, which is where you're, you're going to do most of your V holding. Um, once, once he gets the plus two, you will have had to have decided how you're going to play it. Um, and your stick will need to be in the proper position to do it. You know, if you're just cross check and widen them out, then F by plus two, um, you have to be well into that. Otherwise he's going to get where he needs to go. 
Um, and then same thing with the V hold, you know, getting your stick over and then um, being able to, to, to sit it right on his hip um, and then chicken wing him out um, is really kind of how that, how we teach it. Um, you know, but that, that hip, and this is something I learned from Lars as well is, uh, you know, kind of slapping, whether it's a, a um, you know, a, a slap check or, uh, or if it's a V hold, um, you know, slapping, you know, right on that thigh um, yep. and, and coming from thigh to hip uh, to be able to, 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 to widen them out. And I think that that's something that has really stuck with me because, you know, when you're aiming a little bit lower uh, on the body um, in that, in that thigh area, it gets you lower um, and it allows you to, to play, play that, that, that guy in that tough spot a little bit easier. Totally. And at the end of the day, a cross check hold is a stronger position than a V hold, but you sacrifice stronger position with less ball pressure. Right. There's no doubt. And I think it's, you know, the V hold allows you to, to get into his hands uh, and his stick and make him a little bit more uncomfortable um, as he's trying to, to separate and, and make his decision on what to do. Um, and, and again, that's why I think a lot of it's really determined by how you're sliding, um, you know, the, and, and also when you're sliding, you know, the timing of it. And, you know, if you have to slide at all, um, I think yeah. those are the things that, you know, for us will really determine how we're going to, how we're going to tell our guys to play, um, and also what, what their history is and how they've done it. I love the terminology that Jerry Byrne uses when he talks about capturing players in a V hold. Because yep. then your V-hole can actually become the opportunity to double. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that's important. Um, you know, I think the, the ability to really kind of force a, a player to go to a place he doesn't want to go to, um, a lot of our defense is really based on that. And, you know, whether you're capturing with a V-hold or, you know, you're cross-checking him um, to a certain spot, I think, you know, you need to make sure that you're getting the people where they need to, where you need them to get to um, in order to make them uncomfortable. Um, and then, you know, the next phase for us is, you know, the slide timing. I think a lot of people will look at slide timing as, all right, what, what do we need to do um, in order to, you know, cover up, you know, a potential mishap or cover up a mistake um, for us in the way that we dictate tempo is, we actually, we, we want to, we want to create the chaos, you know? So when a guy turns his head, we're, we're, we're going to get after him. And we really try and, and surprise people to do that. And this is something that I've talked a lot with, uh, with Lars about Virginia does it really well. Um, is, is just that showing up when they least expect it, um, depending on, you know, where you're coming from. And, you know, I think the V hold allows you to do that because when you're captured, what happens is your feet stop and when right. your feet stop, you can really surprise a guy and, and, you know, show up and, and get them. We, we call it a grenade. Um, you teach our guys to, to grenade off the ball. You know, you see the back of his head, his feet start to slow down. It's a great time to grenade. Um, you know, whether you're the, the slide guy um, or what we call the stunt guy, which is adjacent. Um, we like to, we like to grenade with that stunt guy a lot, especially if the heads turn the other way. Yeah. Interesting. When you and when you're thinking about double teaming or sliding, obviously everybody teaches slide decisions, you know, in the tells, um, and probably your whole defense is reading the same tells. But what is your? Do you have tells um, without giving away too many secrets about when you actually slide so that your the rest of your defense knows we're committed to this, or is it all a read? 
Um, it, initially, we have tells on when we have to go um, and when we, when we think we need to slide. And I, I mentioned before uh, the approach arc that's defined for our guys. And you know, if, we, if we don't get hands on uh, on the ball um, by the approach arc, then that, that triggers for all of us that we need to go and we need to slide. Um, but the other part of it is le reading the, the, body, or the body language of the Dodger. Um, and watching their hips and their chest and seeing where, where that is aimed at. So um, typically if someone's dodging and, you know, their hips and their chest are, are aimed towards a sideline, then we don't want to go to that. And we, we may start the slide, um, but then we would call it off and, and what we call it, we would, we would you it and, and just get back in. Um, and then obviously if someone has hips and chest that are pointed towards the end line, that means that they're going to be a little bit more of a threat to shoot and score. Um, and that would be a trigger for us to be able to go. Um, and then obviously the, the communication that goes along with that is really important. And we spend a ton of time on that of, uh, you know, not only the slide decision-making, but also the terminology and the communication that goes along with that uh, to make sure that everybody knows what's happening with a few short words um, and that becomes our, our conversation throughout the defense. Very cool. Um, I'd love to transition into recruiting in here. I know we touched a little bit on it already, but I'd love to hear um, your thoughts on what you're looking for. Um, so if you're recruiting defensemen to Lehigh, what are you looking for? And probably a lot of traits, um, maybe not all the same type of player, but in general, what are you looking for? I'm John Canaris, founder of Oxia Time, a watch company specializing in university branded watches. Before I fell in love with watches, I fell in love with lacrosse. Maybe you've heard of the Airgate? Well, that was me and goal that day. We may not have won the national championship, but we did win the Ivy League that year and two years before. The first time, we got a ring that we never wore. The second time, we got a watch that while it had great sentimental value, the quality didn't match the significance of our achievements or the memories we created. Ever since then, I've looked for a watch with the design and quality that would live up to my experiences at Penn. After 30 years of looking and not finding what I wanted, I decided to build it myself. At Axia Time, we create Swiss-made automatic watches with stylish designs and quality befitting the universities we represent. Premium watches without the premium price. Check us out at axiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. Yeah, I think, you know, defensively, you know, we're looking for toughness and ball skills. Um, those are the two things that jump off the page. Um, you know, we, we take a lot of pride in our defense. Um, you know, like I said, we want to dictate tempo. And, you know, there's no way to – no better way, in my opinion, to dictate tempo than to be the, the, the toughest version of a defense that you possibly can be. Um, because if, if they know that you're coming after them, that they're going to, you know, they're going to, they're going to take it a little bit, then, uh, they may be a little bit more hesitant to, to get to the spots they're used to getting to. So, um, we want guys that are, that are physically tough, but also mentally tough, um, that can be able to, to shake it off quickly and be able to get back in there. Um, and then ball skills are something that we put a premium on. And, you know, I, I classify ball skills in, in two ways. One is, uh, is ground ball skills, being able to get it up off the deck, um, the first time. And we put a premium on that. Um, and we feel like that's something that we do well as a defense and not allowing teams to get any second chances that the ball goes down on defense. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to make sure that, that it's coming up for, for Lehigh and it's getting up and out. Um, and then also, like we talked about before is, is being able to uh, the knack of, of being able to pick passes. Um, so I put that in, in ball skills as well. And 
So we actively look for that. And, you know, listen, don't get me wrong. The one thing I didn't say is athleticism. Like we want to get the best possible athletes that we can, but um, we also understand that if we got guys that are incredibly tough and that have great ball skills and the way that we're playing and what we just talked about and the way that we play defense, man, to man and zone, um, we have those, those two uh, concepts in our defensive players, then I think we're going to be okay. So many defensive guys growing up are just relegated to only playing defense and they just don't develop great stick skills. But when we're seeing the shot clock era with the 22nd clearing clock and all that, um, and the fact that creating offense from defense is as a premium, um, that's kind of what you're talking about. Yeah, I also think this, a lot of people have looked at the recruiting world and, and they try and go up to Canada to get their offensive players. And, uh, you know, for, for us, you know, we take a premium of looking at guys on the defensive end uh, from up in, in the great white north and look at a guy on our team, Teddy Leggett. Um, you know, this, this kid is, is unbelievable. When you talk about ball skills, you know, this is a guy that you want to study. Um, he's, he's really good at it. Um, you know, he had his partner in crime, uh, Craig Chick. Uh, last year, um, you know, Craig's now playing uh, in the PLL. But um, I think um, the way that, you know, Canadians are, are brought up and the, the box game and the way that they go about it, you know, hockey uh, carryover that they have. Um, I think Brody Merrill was a guy that, that really set the, the tone with that. And, you know, we try and we try and go up there to look for not just offensive players, but defensive guys as well. Yeah, they, they've got the combination of toughness and skill, that's for sure. Um, and it's kind of funny because they grow up playing only with short sticks, right? And they develop this incredible level of finishing and skill. Um, and yet most defensemen are, are, are just working on overpasses and ground balls um, and, and, and playing defense. And really your upside is in your skill. No doubt. And I think, I, also, I, I think the hockey part of it is huge. I think that eye hand that you develop playing hockey, you know, being able to stick handle and, 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 you know, move the puck, you know, quickly and, get it up and out. I think that's, that's important. We see a lot of guys that, that have that translate over. And I think in, in our long sticks, you know, if I had to look back on it, you know, over the last five or six years, I'm pretty sure just about every one of those guys had a hockey background. Um, and, you know, they've become vacuums off the, off the deck um, when the ball's down there on the defensive end. You guys hockeyed around uh, on the ground balls a little bit too, I bet. We do a ton, a ton. And we, uh, we teach that, we work on that, we rep that. And, uh, and that's something that we really, we really make uh, make use of in, in our, our ground ball play. That's awesome. Um, okay, so how about middies? Yeah, so <clears throat> offensively, uh, you know, overall middies, you know, I would include in this, and we have a little bit of a, of a different uh, mentality in the way that we recruit on the offensive end. And I look at this as um, th this is kind of this is a basketball mindset that I look at, and um, I know in basketball, there's five guys, um, and obviously in lacrosse, there's going to be six on the offensive end. So um, here's how I look at it. Um, you have the spots in basketball. You have, you know, one, two, three, four, five, and the way you go about it. I look at it the same way uh, for lacrosse. Um, so the, the difference for us, you know, the one being the point guard <clears throat> is, you know, for, for the way that we recruit and the way I want to play is we need two of those. All right. So we need two point guards. We want a point guard above the goal. And then we want a point guard be below the goal, um, behind the goal. And, you know, so what's the difference in basketball? Well, in basketball, you can't go behind the basket, right? So you're out of bounds. Um, so for us, we just push that, that end line back. And, and now we got a point guard behind, a point guard above. Um, and then our two spot, you know, similar to basketball. What is that in basketball? Well, it's a guy that can handle the ball, but it's also someone that can penetrate and shoot. 
Um, you know, so we're, we're going to look for a midfielder, you know, that kind of fits that role as well. So a midfielder who would be a point guard, a midfielder that who would be, you know, kind of that swing guy as a guard um, who could do a little bit of everything. Um, and then our three guy would be, would be a shooter, you know, a guy that can, that can hammer the ball. Um, and, you know, just like in basketball, he's going to, he's going to shoot the three pointers. He's going to be, you know, you know, out there, you know, just hammering, hammering home when the defense rotates or over rotates, being able to, to make that, um, you know, make them pay. Um, and then you know, the four, four and five spots I look at uh, as attackmen, um, you know, four, four spot. Um, would be the guy that, you know, kind of your power forward, um, you know, so, you know, maybe a bigger body of an offensive, offensive player, of an attackman um, that, that can really be physical, um, can, can certainly dodge um, and, and score. Um, could be a righty, could be a lefty, um, but is not going to necessarily need the ball on his stick all the time. So he'll need to have some off-ball skill as well. Um, and then the five spot on attack would be, you know, your, your off-ball finisher. Um, again, could be lefty, could be righty. Uh, for me, I'd rather have our, our our four and our five be opposite hands. So one of them be a left lefty, one of them be a righty. Um, and it doesn't matter which is which. But that five spot, that center, um, you know, he's going to be great off the ball. Typically, it's been a Canadian for us, um, you know, or someone who plays like a Canadian. Um, and then they're working, you know, with that point guard behind the goal, um, who's our, our ex attackman. So th that's how we kind of look at it. The way that we ride um, also helps us to be able to recruit this way um, because I look at it, I think the one spot, the two spot, um, and the obviously the point guard behind the goal, the five spot and the four spot, all those spots, I think all of those guys can be attackmen. Um, and the way that we ride allow, allow us to be able to play potentially five attackmen at a time um, and you know potentially maybe one or two uh, two-way middies, depending on how the recruiting process goes and what we look to do. But, you know, we could play five attackmen and one two-way middy um, at a time. That's kind of how we would look at it um, and then be able to ride in such a way that gets those offensive players off the, uh, the field, the attackmen off the field to be able to get our defensive personnel in, which I think is really important to be a great defense is that you actually have your defensive people in the game. It's kind of funny because it's almost like all of your players are kind of like attackmen in some ways, ideally, because your poles are going to be slick like attackmen so they can pick off passes and be really comfortable with their sticks in the on-ball situations as well as in ground balls. And your middies are oftentimes like attackmen and can, or can play like attackmen. Yeah. Um, and you're, of course, your attacker attack. <laughs> And I think it's, I think it's helped us to, you know, as we've you know, figured out, you know, kind of where we live in the recruiting uh, realm and, and who we're able to get, um, you know, the, the things that, that you'll see all the time, you know, you see the, the big, you know, six, three, you know, downhill dodging midfielders, you know, that, that are just hammering the ball on the run and the recruiting circuit, you know, like, you know, those guys are going to the ACC, you know, or, or, you know, the big 10 or whatever. And, um, you know, that, that those are the guys that typically get picked off pretty, pretty early. Um, but there are a ton of guys that are just incredibly skilled, might not look like that, um, you know, but are just really skilled offensive players, whether they're attackmen, most of them are usually attackmen um, or middies that, you know, we feel that, that have a spot and we have access to and can, can get in the recruiting process. And, you know, have had to, to find ways to be able to get all those guys on the field. And we're doing that in the way that we ride. 
and oh, by the way, it fits in really well with the way that we play offense and want to play it with all the two-man game that we play and the premium that we have on being able to, you know, go both ways, be skilled, make decisions, have lacrosse IQ. Um, you know, there's been times where we've had five ex-attack men in the game at the same time, and the lacrosse IQ that's going on out there in a set is pretty cool to watch. For sure. You keep referencing how you ride. How does that impact the way you recruit? Um, <clears throat> I think just exactly that and, and the way that, that we can recruit more attackmen in the class, um, you know, because the, the, the way that we're, we are riding is, is, you know, able to, we're able to get off um, two of our three midfielders. Um, it, it's, it's like clockwork. I mean, it's, it's it really, it's not, it's not an issue. We're able to get them off pretty easily without giving up transition. Awesome. Um, we're able to kind of stop gap it. A lot of it is predicated on, um, forcing, forcing the clearing team to take as much time as possible. Um, it's not necessarily um, going to prevent them from eventually clearing the ball. Um, but we think a win in the ride is being able to get our defensive personnel, all six of them, on the field completely because the percentage of getting a stop in that set goes up exponentially if you're able to get all six of those guys in uh, compared to having offensive middies in there playing a set. That is a really interesting uh, philosophy on writing. And is it kind of like the Notre Dame roll up where you end up like getting a, a mini rolling up onto attack offense side and, and essentially almost conveyor belting your players onto the field? Exactly. Yep, exactly. It's uh, it's just a, it's a wheel rotation and um, it does take, uh, it take, it takes communication more so nonverbal communication of just understanding um, you know, all right, you know, are, are they going to, are they getting over to the top of us? You know, do we have to send an offensive midi back in to the hole or, or two offensive middies back into the hole? Um, or, or are we able to turn them back and force them to the box side so that, you know, they're chewing up some time and we're able to get our people on and off. And, uh, you know, the, the, the beauty of it too, is that, you know, in, in developing it, it, it hasn't precluded us to be able to 10 man ride. Um, I think a lot of people think that you have to keep, uh, two, two offensive middies on the field, at least, to be able to 10-man ride. Um, but I, I've found that you don't have to do that. You can still roll up into it and be able to put pressure on teams with, uh, with running two of your people off. Awesome. Um, how about your opinion on uh, recruiting goalies? Yeah, so um, the specialty positions in, in particular are ones that we have put tons of emphasis on um, in the recruiting process. And, you know, being able to, to win the faceoff has, has been – you know, such a valuable um, resource in, in our sport. And then obviously being able to stop the ball, you know, because regardless of how you're playing defense, if you have someone that can save the ball, you know, above 50%, you know, if you can get into that 55 to 60% range, you know, you're now, now we're talking. So um, it was funny, I, you know, I know you had Ronnie uh, Caputo on and good yep. buddy of mine uh, the other day, and he was talking about, you know, the specialty positions and, you know, trying to be, um, you know, you, you need to be in a game at 100% you know, the, the combined percentage of each of those. So your face off and your oh, yeah. goalie at hundred um, percent for us, we take it a step further. We're, we're looking for 110%, um, you know, and, and the, the face off is, is a key to that. And we feel like in the recruiting process, we put a ton of emphasis on that position. We invest a lot into that position because we realize how valuable it is um, in, in the grand scheme of things, the, the possession is everything. So if you have more possessions than your opponent, then you're going to be in better position to win that game. Um, so I know I'm talking more about the face-off, but it also goes hand-in-hand hand with the goalie. Yeah. 
um, because our goalie position is really important too. Um, and for me, I've looked at it, you know, I think right now the trend is for, is for goalies with size, you know, so bigger goalies um, as, you know, shooters become more and more accurate. You want to have someone that can be able to take up more of the net. We haven't had that. We, we, uh, we certainly look to recruit it a little bit, um, but, you know, our goalies have actually been a little bit, a little bit smaller. Um, but what I have found in the technique of our goaltenders is that there's two specific techniques that we have recruited. Um, and they, they come from certain camps um, that, of guys, you know, that you'll understand when I say it. But uh, one is, uh, is kind of the Brian Doherty school of thought. Um, and, uh, and Doc, you know, obviously, in my opinion, one of the best goalies to ever play, maybe the best to ever play, certainly the best goalie I've ever played with. Um, you know, he and I were teammates in, in Philly and then on Team USA. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of what he is doing and what he teaches, and he's got a lot of disciples uh, underneath him and, um, you know, the guys that have done really well for their own right. But, you know, a lot of it is, is him um, kind of holding, holding a front pipe and then exploding to a back pipe and a lot of, uh, a lot of baiting and, and determining where people are going to be shooting the ball um, and then surprising them by showing up where, where, where he's dictating that they're going to shoot that ball. Um, and we've seen that a lot. Um, a lot of the, the guys that are kind of disciples of, of Doc, um, you look at guys like Austin Cout, um, you know, he was one of them. Um, Drew Adams uh, was one of them. Um, our current goalie, James Spence, is in that category. Um, so that technique we've found to, to be really successful, and obviously that speaks for itself with those guys. Um, and then the other technique is one that would be most similar to a guy like Jesse Schwartzman. Um, and what Jesse does, he's a, definitely a bigger body, um, but Jesse does a really good job of, uh, of posting up closer to the back pipe than to the front pipe. So it's kind of the op opposite methodology of Doherty. Um, Doherty, you know, if you're thinking about an alley dodge coming down, you know, Doc is, he's sitting on that front pipe. You see a whole bunch of net on that back pipe. Everybody in the world knows that the shooter is going to shoot to that back pipe. And then before it releases from your stick, he's sitting right there ready to eat it up. Um, Schwartzman would be the opposite of that. So as you're coming down that alley, he's just sitting on that back pipe. There's no room, no space. So if you're going to score on him, you got to shoot it to the front pipe and, uh, and, and near side. And that becomes a really tough shot for a guy going down the alley. So that's just that specific spot. But um, we've had a lot of success recruiting goalies that follow both of those techniques. And we don't necessarily need to prioritize one over the other, but that's kind of how we've looked at it. Similarity between those techniques is that you're doing some dictating to the shooters and you're making it a game and you're putting them in a position where you're reading them more than they're reading you. And it's almost like a, a fluency in the ability to play the position very different from the wait for the shot. Don't move until the shots in the air concept. Can you talk about that a little bit from traditional, just wait for the wait for the shot. Don't move. Yeah, I mean, I just think the, the, the wait for the shot thing is, is tough because, you know, at, at some point, you're just not going to be able to catch up to it. There's very few guys that can sit back, wait for a shot. Um, and the way that they're moving and the way that they're placed these days, it's, it's going to be tough for you to get there. So um, I think the, the, the mentality and a little bit of the, the mind game that goes into it, and that, that's one thing I learned from Doc is uh, – you know, he was the best at playing those mind games. And he always used to say, he's like, all right, you know, listen, if, uh, you know, if I'm exploding to the back pipe and somebody hits the, the near side on me, then the game is on, you know, and, and I, I file that. And I know that that person understands what's going on and I'm going to adjust to it next time. And 
you know, wow. so the inner game that goes on with a guy like that and being able to help people understand that, um, you know, in, in our, in our, our realm is really important. Doc must do that in a, in a million different scenarios though. Right. I mean, it's not, yeah. it's not just back pipe, front pipe, alley dodge. It's probably in every single scenario. He's kind of knows what your options are yep. and he's going to show you something and then take it away. And it's, and it's different based on, you know, even we're just talking about alley dodges right now. Well, whether it's coming down the right-hand alley or the left-hand alley, it's different because, you know, depending on your, your stick, you either lefty, obviously, or if you're a righty, you don't necessarily have to, to jump as far to protect the back pipe because mm -hmm. your stick might be there, you know, if you're a lefty and they're coming down the left-handed alley. So, um, yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot of ins and outs to, to how he teaches it and, and how he goes about it. And a lot of it is just experience and what he's found. And then also, you know, the, the preparation that he put into it of understanding what shooters are good at and what they like to do. Um, and then being able to try and take that away from them. And, and I think that's, that's a huge part of the genius that is uh, Brian Doherty. And uh, that's why we like his style. Yeah. So awesome. What about, how's, what's your take on, um, on stepping out and cutting down angle when you know a shooter's got time in room? Yeah. So <clears throat> I think that we, we look at guys that are, uh, that are stepping out um, I think it, again, it depends. If you're talking about time and room, um, you know, stepping to the goal, stepping to the shooter, um, I actually don't. I don't think that's the appropriate thing to do. Um, I think if you're doing that, you're stepping out, um, unless your intention is to try and take up net and force them to miss, um, or just simply to get hit. Um, you know, I, which I don't think is the best strategy, honestly. Um, I think that, you know, stepping towards, uh, stepping out towards the, the shooter is not great. I think stepping laterally is something that's really important um, because it gives you a little bit extra time um, to react to where the ball is going. So, you know, we try and really focus on that and, you know, making sure that, you know, guys have their pinky toes, you know, towards the pipes and then they're able to, uh, to step laterally as opposed to stepping out. Yeah. So stepping to the ball, which is what everyone teaches and everyone grew up hearing, you know, is, is, is a little different than stepping laterally. Although what I was talking about was cutting down angle before a shot. So like just by basically playing yeah, yeah, yeah. a bigger arc, um, you watch a lot of, you know, goalies that grew up with their heels on the end line and then they get to the MLL or the PLL and all of a sudden their, their arcs are a little bit bigger. Yeah, I, th I think, you know, and that, to that point, yeah, definitely. Um, that's not something that, that we necessarily teach uh, to our guys, um, you know, just because a lot of the times it, it, the, you know, the techniques that we just talked about for the guys that we're kind of looking for, um, that would be something that would be completely foreign to them and it would make them really uncomfortable. Um, so that's not something that we would look to do and we try and stick with their skill set a little bit. But I can tell you this, you know, the guys that we've played against and, um, you know, not anymore, but, you know, back, um, you know, w when we used to play Navy right. for, I mean, uh, you know, they, their guys always stepped out and it made it really tough for, for guys to be able to play around them and they'd end up hitting the goalie a ton and missing the cage a ton. I do right. think there's some merit to that. I think if, uh, if you're a smart shooter, um, you can really handcuff a guy. You know, if you can get enough heat on it, you can handcuff a guy that he won't be able to get to it unless he gets hit. Right. Um, okay, last question about recruiting. Can you just talk about Lehigh recruiting and, and uh, State of the Union on Lehigh Lacrosse right now? How you guys are feeling um, in the wake of losing your 2020 season um, and uh, moving forward? Yeah, so uh, recruiting 
kind of now is different um, just in the last six weeks for us because, you know, we were right smack in the middle of our 2021 recruiting. Um, you know, we were, we, we, we kind of take our time, um, you know, by design a little bit in the process, just because um, we feel like, you know, for us, we've always gone about it trying to watch guys develop and, and being able to scoop up guys a little bit later in the process that we feel, you know, maybe have, uh, you know, been a little bit under the radar um, or maybe just a little bit late to bloom. Um, so for that reason, we were kind of sitting at six uh, of our, our 12 spots with our 21 class. And we were really happy with that. And I think it's going to work out to our benefit too, because now with the cancellation of the season, the NCAA ruling of, of granting, you know, all spring athletes a, uh, an extra year of eligibility We've actually shifted our recruiting from recruiting high school kids in 21s to now we're really focused on recruiting our own players to, to try and get them back for fifth years for the next four years <laughs> um, and creating enough space on our roster and, and understanding the finances and how all that works to try and, and help those guys out uh, to be able to do that. And um, you know, we feel like we're in a really good position to, to be able to help those guys and, and, and help them academically, you know, find things that um, would make sense for them to pursue, like graduate degrees or double majors or whatever, um, and then be able to get, you know, some of our, our top guys to come back for that fifth year. So um, kind of weird uh, to, to think about it that way, but that's become our number one priority is, uh, is working with our players to re-recruit them back for fifth years over the next four years. Awesome. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. I love talking lacrosse with you. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me. Um, I still remember uh, my first year in coaching at Stony Brook. And uh, when I was working for Lars Tiffany, uh, he sent out our offensive coordinator, Patrick Finn, uh, out to Denver to, to learn as much as he could about your offensive techniques and your, your skills and fundamentals. And uh, we learned a ton from you and, you know, what, what you have done. Um, and what, what you did way back then has really helped to revolutionize the way that we play lacrosse and, and the way that lacrosse is, uh, is coached. So uh, thank you for that indirectly and uh, appreciate all that you do. And I appreciate you having me on today. Thanks for the kind words and uh, let's do it again. All right. Sounds good. All right. See you, Kevin.